Hey guys, Metal Jesus here, and you are listening to Discography Discussion. You're listening to Discography Discussion, episode 123, Alice in Chains, featuring Jason of Metal Jesus Rocks. God, they just destroyed it. It's awesome. Hosted by Dan Terry. They just auditioned a whole bunch of really bad singers. And Joe Wren. Jerry Cantrell can do whatever he wants. Presented by DiscussMetal.com. And if you think a custard pie is the only solution to your Yeti problem, then you are ready for this episode of Discography Discussion. I am Joe. That is Dan. Jason is here of Metal Jesus Rocks. What up? Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's our, our pleasure for sure. We, uh, it, it's, it's funny, whenever I was a wee lad, and not really that wee, but whenever I started watching YouTube videos, I remember subscribing to your channel early on and then started watching. And originally, it was, I, I would skip the gaming videos just to get to the metal videos, so to speak, mm. the ones where you'd be like, this is what I've been listening to, or this is what I've been into. Um, but being a huge retro gaming fan myself, I uh, eventually got into all the retro gaming videos as well, and uh, it's been quite fun just watching a channel that you started off watching a few years ago get to where it's at now. Yeah, thank you. And, you know, it's funny, um, lately I've been wanting to be on a, on some more podcasts and specifically some music-specific podcasts. And so my short, short list had yours at the top of it, and and if you want to know the truth, I was actually too shy to ask you to be on it because I was like, "Oh, I don't, you know, they're not going to know who I am." Like, oh no, man! I mean, as far as uh, as far as that stuff goes, I mean, we're uh, we're about as chill as it gets as far as that stuff. Well, you you did a couple episodes of my absolute favorite. So first of all, I got to do a huge shout out to your Dream Theater episode, which you had to do twice. Yes, but you did it, which was awesome. Uh, and then also the Opeth podcast episode, which was again fascinating to listen to. Uh, yeah, I, I love what you guys do. So I'm I'm honored to be here today. Thank you very much. Yeah, we appreciate it big time. The Dream Theater one was one of our first technical hiccups, where we. Uh, we recorded half the episode, and I think like three weeks went by, and then Joe calls me and says, hey, dude, half the episode's gone. And I was like, what are you talking about? Oh, man. He's like, it's gone. The first technical hurdle we ever really ran into was that episode, and all I can say is we did the whole thing, and somewhere along the line, about an hour into editing, everything was garbled, five huh. tracks of audio, just you can't understand anything, it sounds like a robot. I kept it for my own amusement, but it wasn't listenable. So that was the first, okay, well, we have to do it again, but we also yeah. have to put something out this weekend. So <laughs> it got done, and I'm happy with it. Well, I'll, I'll share a little uh, little, little piece of, of, of where I can kind of uh, relate where, um, you know, I live in Seattle, and so there's a bunch of video game companies around here. And a really good friend of ours uh, from the Sierra days was working at Valve. So Valve is in Seattle as well. They're actually in Bellevue, Washington, which is really close. And he was giving us a private behind the scenes tour of Valve. And yeah, and I mean, it was basically just just the three of us or the four of us brought my camera along. Uh, and then when we got home, we realized that the microphone was off the entire time. Oh no. There was no audio whatsoever. And it was such a 
kind of like uh, under the radar sort of tour that we can never really redo it. So it happens. Did you think about calling him and having him come to your house to overdub the entire video? <laughs> it was one of those moments where now every day or every time I shoot a video, I'm always like looking at the red light going both on the camera and also on the microphone going, OK, is it on? Double check, double check. You know what I mean? Also, I have a yes or no question for you. Sure. Uh, <laughs> I can't even see that. He, he is saying uh, Portal Three. So here's the thing, you know, I just <laughs> I, I just got back from E3, and I fully expected to see at least something from Valve announced there. And I, I thought Portal Three, Portal Three was going to probably be the most, uh, you know, likely of things that they might announce, but they didn't. So I was really surprised. I can dream. So the thing about Valve is, and we can go on a tangent here, but Valve is a very unusual company, and that is completely flat as far as its structure goes, meaning that there are no managers, no bosses at all. Everyone is on the same level. And so the way that that works at Valve is that you as an individual, if you are hired there and you want to make Portal 3 or Half-Life 3, you have to build your team and, and basically sell it to the rest of the company and get people to move over to that. Anyone can do it. It's a really interesting place to work, uh, but it's also can get bogged down in not getting anything done. And that's what you're seeing. I, I, that's my feeling for that. So one side of that, I remember there was a story a few years ago that someone had an issue and they sent an email to Gabe Newell thinking they were mm -hmm. going to the top of the company. And his response in so many words was, what's your ticket number? <laughs> like, we're all available. We're all here to yeah. help you. Just send me your issue. We'll take care of it. Yeah. It's, it's a truly unusual company in that regard. And they, uh, They've, they've been that way ever since. And the reason why I know this is because a bunch of old Sierra folk that I used to work with moved. When Sierra collapsed, they went over to Valve. So anyways, not, not to derail our, our podcast any, but uh, I can nerd out on video game stuff too. <laughs> we'll keep that in mind. We'll save that for the end when everybody's a couple of beers in, right? Yeah. That's usually how we roll. So this week we're going to talk about Allison Chain. So whenever we had been doing the, no pun intended, email chain back and forth about what bands we want to talk to, Jason actually threw out a whole bunch of bands, and I was like, oh, wow, okay, uh, cool. I, I want to talk about all those bands. I do. Some of them are going to take me a little bit more time to, <laughs> to familiarize myself with. I mean, I've done some crazy ones like 14 albums in a week or 20 albums in a week, and full disclosure, sometimes I'll take longer than a week if, if I have to. But uh, what's interesting is that with Alice in Chains, in my mind, I was like, what? Why haven't? Didn't we already talk about Alice in Chains? Was the first thing I thought, because it's like a hundred and something episodes now. It's hard to keep track, and I was like, we, I feel like we've had this conversation before, and I was like, no, we've never done an Alice in Chains discussion at all, and I couldn't understand why. So I was like, well, that's that's not going to be so bad. That's only a few albums and a bunch of EPs, <laughs> and uh, and then you remembered they had newer albums, yes, featuring a whole <laughs> right. new lineup, mostly just a yeah. new lead singer, but. If your guy sounds like Lane, it can't yeah. be a bad thing. Jerry Cantrell is still doing exactly what he does so well. I do think that man is a genius, but we will get into that. Yeah, no, this, this was a good one for us. I know I, I think I recommended that we do Kiss because I'm such a huge Kiss fan, but, you know, they have 30 regular albums, and that's like, that's a lot to take unless you're actually familiar with it, right? We've kind of teased at it. Like, if enough people demand it, so to speak, we'll do it. But it's one of those, like, just want to let you guys know, I'm going to be taking on quite a bit of... I mean, everybody knows a few Kiss songs. That, you right. know, even, even people that are just casual radio listeners are going to know a few songs. But 
to dig in. And then, then I had to ask myself, are we going to just do the official Kiss albums or are we going to do like the solo albums from each member? <laughs> or, you know, like there's so many different offshoots there that it, it would have just been so overwhelming. And uh, so I think it's it's going to happen. It may be the first episode we do in multiple parts. I, I was going to say, I would think that would be my recommendation for Kiss is do everything up to probably Creatures of the Night or maybe, you know what, actually what you should do is you should do the 70s stuff up to uh, Music from the Elder. So that's that's the album that everyone hates and it basically caused them to reboot the band. And so you do that up to the Elder, that's episode one. And then, then everything else beyond that, that could be another episode. We could make the mistake of doing just the albums where they have makeup on and the albums that they don't have makeup. I have a feeling, based on most of the KISS fans I know, the second episode would get ignored completely. Well, maybe. Although, you know, for me, again, we can go on massive tangents here. I, I don't know how tight you keep this because uh, <laughs> I could go on tangents. But I actually found KISS in the 80s, right? So I'm an 80s kid. So I love, I love the Asylum era the Crazy Nights era, all that, you know, the, the Lick It Up era too. I, I know I'm in the minority. But uh, Alice in Chains is perfect because for me, I, like I said, I'm, I live in Seattle. Uh, in the 90s, I actually worked at a small record uh, record store in Renton, Washington called Budget Tapes and Discs. And, uh, you know, I was there going to shows when the whole grunge thing took, just basically took off. So uh, th- this will be, this will be cool. Well, before we start talking about how much we want to be the minority, I want to take this time to say thank you to everyone for listening to the podcast. Thank you for listening and for subscribing. If you are not a subscriber, then you can find everything Discography Discussion at DiscussMetal.com. We are on Spotify, Apple and Google Podcasts, TuneIn Radio, Stitcher. So if you have an Amazon Echo or a Google Home, you have no excuse. Ask it to play the latest episode of the Discography Discussion Podcast, and it will. We're also on Facebook and on Twitter at Discuss Metal. Be sure to like, favorite, and subscribe. It really helps us out. It lets us know you're listening. And now Dan is going to tell us all about five-star reviews. We love five-star reviews here on Discography Discussion, and the reason we like them is because all of your recommended podcasts are controlled by an algorithm. And what that algorithm is always looking for is reviews. A highly reviewed podcast is going to get recommended to people that haven't heard it before. And that's really all we want. But like I said before, and as we've teased about even at the beginning of this episode, as soon as those 100 reviews are on my desk, we will do a kiss episode, unless all 100 of those reviews say, don't do a kiss episode. (laughs) (laughs) So if you guys want that, uh, we will do it for you. If you don't want that, please let us know before we do it. And now Jason is going to tell us all about Metal Jesus Rocks. Yeah, so I am a full-time YouTuber, and I've been doing YouTube for... Well, I started seriously back in 2010, and at the time I had an IT help desk job, and I was able to transition from that to doing YouTube full-time, and I forget what, like 2016 or something, 15? And uh, yeah, so my YouTube channel is all about retro games and music and all things fun and cool like that. I put out two videos a week. Um, Yeah, and I used to, like I mentioned before, I used to work at a company called Sierra Online, which made a bunch of retro games. Well, they weren't retro at the time, but yeah, like adventure games. And there's a publisher, so they put out everything from sports games, racing games, adventure games, you name it, they they, they put it out. So Lifelong King's Quest fan right here. One through insert (laughs) the end because they put out a new one a few years ago, and it was amazing. I'd also like to say on Dan's behalf, the jealousy in this room every time he sees your wall of big box PC games cannot be matched. (laughs) 
<laughs> <laughs> I do love my my wall of big box PC games. It's a dream of mine to have that now. And um, and yeah, it's I have so many in there that either I, I, I didn't pick up at the time because I was an idiot or uh, I threw away at some point. So now I, I kind of feel like it's an archive of all those big, glorious big box PC games. And it's definitely one of my favorite parts of my collection. So, Dan, tell me about Alice in Chains. <laughs> well, which one? See, the funny thing is, is there were actually two bands called Alice in Chains. Uh, one, well, well, it wasn't fronted by Lane Staley, but he played drums, I think, in the original incarnation of Alice in Chains. And it was Alice in Chains, like the letter N, uh, you know, kind of like Guns N' Roses, but not like that, if you ask them. <laughs> and uh, they had called the band Alice in Chains, and I think that band only lasted a matter of a couple of months. And they were just more of like a glam metal band uh, from that time period, which is kind of good that they didn't take off because their career would have immediately been like destroyed two or three years later. You know, they, they might have been riding high, might have got an album out, but I mean, after that, they, they would have been silenced, like a lot of the a lot of the '80s bands were. So they reformed, or Lane Staley basically was living with Jerry Cantrell, and Jerry started another band that wasn't called Alice in Chains yet, and they kept trying out singers, and they kept trying to convince Lane to sing for the band, and he was just kind of shy about it, like he wasn't sure he wanted to do it. So they just auditioned a whole bunch of really bad singers in front of Lane until he basically like had no choice but to be like, look, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go ahead and front this band because all these guys are terrible. And so he called his old bandmates from the old Alice in Chains and was like, hey, we want to start this new band, but we want to call it Alice in Chains. And he's like, they're like, I, yeah, I mean, I guess, whatever, you know, because the band was broke up. So that's, uh, that's kind of the, the backstory to how that band was formed. And what we ended up getting was definitely not a glam metal band, but not really a grunge band either, but I, I'm, I'm going to defer to Jason here a little bit because obviously I wasn't around at that time uh, in that scene. Was it really like an overnight thing where people just didn't care about metal anymore? Yeah, I've been thinking a lot about this this week, listening to all these, these albums. And, you know, the funny thing about grunge and the term grunge, as someone who lives here and lived through that and grew up and these, you know, I don't have a good definition for grunge. I do feel like... Allison Chains, out of all of the big five Seattle bands at the time, you have Allison Chains, Nirvana, Soundgarden, Pearl Jam, and maybe Candlebox. I'm those off the top of my head. Allison Chains to me is probably the most grunge sounding, in that for whatever that that means. But see, because I live here, I also remember bands like the Melvins and and Tad and some of these other bands that were a little bit more funky. And by funky, I mean like weird, obscure. And those are the bands that I kind of think are a little bit more grungy. You know, Grunt Trunk, Grunt Truck is another one. And so Alice in Chains to me is definitely a little bit on the heavier side, maybe grungier side, slower. But as to what that really means, I don't I don't know, man. It's it's a bizarre term. I mean, because grunge also is a fashion thing too, you know, remember? Yeah, all about the all about the uh, the wallet chain, the yeah. flannel shirt, you yeah. know, the the ripped up jeans. It, it was definitely a fashion statement at that time, yeah. But I will say, though, so you ask about sort of like, did they just happen and was it a big thing? And the answer to that is no, is that initially the Seattle bands at the time were, were being passed around, you know, by your friends. And so I remember specifically getting a cassette dub of, a, of Soundgarden's very first album from a, uh, a cook at a at a, like a hotel I was working at. 
And and that's that's how that happened is that there was this sort of underground music scene happening that people were starting to talk about and get excited about. But it was pretty rough because he also had Green River. He also had um, it was a Mother Love Bone at the time. I'm trying to remember kind of the history of all that stuff. So there were bands that were around and considered to be more popular. But then he started to get a little bit more heavier side. And that was definitely Soundgarden and, and Alice in Chains. I remember in the mid-90s when I really started to pay attention to some of those classic grunge bands like Alice in Chains and Melvin's Nirvana, obviously. Uh, for us, new metal was happening in Missouri about that time is when everybody started to pay attention to Corn because mm. somebody heard the song Adidas and it was the greatest thing ever. Grunge was always sold to me as punk rock with heavy metal distortion. So basically Melvin's. Yeah, or, or I always thought it had a little bit of a Black Sabbath kind of doom sound to it as well. You know, if you listen to Sound Soundgarden and also Alice in Chains, you definitely hear a little bit of the, the slower tempos, um, the the longer kind of melodies that they sing, stuff like that. Even you know, all these all these years later, when people mention grunge, I'm like, what? Is, you know, it, if you look up on on Spotify or uh, Apple Music. And they'll have like grunge playlists. I'm like, what? This is, you know, it's all over the place. What? And isn't that basically just Soundgarden, Pearl Jam, Nirvana, Alice in Chains, Candlebox, like you mentioned earlier, and a little bit of Melvin's? And again, only half of those bands I would consider actually grunge, right? Because Candlebox was absolutely a 70s hard rock band, oh, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. You know? Um, Pearl Jam have always said that they were influenced by and wanted to be Neil Young meets The Who. And if you if you listen to that, that's exactly kind of what they are, right? So, yeah, it's a weird term. But for me, I, I do, it, when someone mentions grunge, I'm like, okay, Allison Chains, fine. That's cool. The, the, yeah, let's, let's do that. I've always resisted it. Just because they came from Seattle in the early 90s, late 80s, didn't make them grunge. They were a rock band if that is what they were. Uh, most of the time, their big singles had Jerry Cantrell and Lane singing over acoustic. That's true. Yeah, that's a good point. Is Alice in Chains were, of all the bands, I think, um, you know, very interesting in that they had a heavy side, but also a lot of acoustic to it, which no other band really did. Maybe Pearl Jam did a little bit, but not quite like Alice in Chains. They really flip-flop quite a bit. Well, and this is what I find so interesting about it is there's a certain narrative in my head that plays out with grunge or the idea of grunge or people saying that grunge music in the 90s killed metal from the 80s, which I think is largely kind of bullshit. Um, I think maybe in the mainstream. Alice in Chains especially, whenever I listen to their stuff, especially their heavier songs, they're still very metal in their in their composition and maybe in more of a Black Sabbath and less of like a Guns N' Roses but they they were very metal in the sense that their rips were kind of like there's there's almost a little bit of bone crunching in some of the heavier songs, <laughs> the darker yeah. melodies. I mean, the very melodic band, obviously, but not in a, like a pretty sort of way, but more of a you're kind of feeling shitty walking down an alleyway and it's raining on you, you know, sort <laughs> right. of way. And so their music was very dark, I guess, is what I'm trying to trying to say. And it was dark and very metal and like the guitar playing, the guitar tone, all of it is very much inspired by the decade of metal that came before it. It's just done in kind of their own way. And so I almost attribute that more just to the personality of the band members than I do, you know, necessarily that it's a specific genre. And what I think is funny about it is that, you know, when people say, oh, well, 
people weren't into metal anymore, you know, 1990, you know, maybe 1991 through 1995. And I'm like, yeah, but if you listen to some of these bands, like there's so much metal influence in what they're playing that it's it's hard to say that like, oh yeah, well they just, it was like a straight 180 from that style. Cause like, I mean, if that were the case that everybody would have been playing new wave, right? Like, well, and also, you know, in the eighties, all the hair metal bands were playing basically a heavier distorted version of the blues, right? Where, where along comes Alice in Chains with their first single, which was man in the box, which is basically a one chord you know, riff. It's a, it's at it's at E major. Well, I guess it's E flat, but it's E flat. You know, power chord. But what's interesting about it is that it has that that high A in that, which gives it that little bit of di- kind of dissidence in that. And that's something that a lot of bands like White Snake and you know name you know name the band of of choice from the late '80s to the early '90s didn't do. And here comes Alice in Chains with just a very simple riff. It's a kind of riff where I think a lot of bands probably at the time were like, "Damn, I wish I'd have wrote that." You know what I mean? It's so simple. Yeah, it's like I just accidentally I almost dropped my guitar and I grabbed it and hit a. And the, I I already played that this week. Yeah. Yeah. Like. Yeah, and I'm sure there was a lot of music snobs too that are like, like don't understand how this garbage is, you know, <laughs> is oh, getting. Yeah. But I mean, that song is undeniable uh, no, I mean, in, in its simplicity and its catchiness and just the strong vocal. Those are the best songs, right? It's like, you know, when they talk about uh, Black Sabbath Paranoid, it's like they needed one extra song in the recording studio. They went and made it up on the fly, and it's like one of the best Black Sabbath songs ever, you know? Um, and so sometimes the best songs are like that. It's funny because actually Kim Thale, who is the guitarist for Soundgarden, he famously had a guitar that he never, ever changed the strings on, which is something you would not do as a guitarist because they'll break. But he basically loved the tone. And so a lot of the classic Soundgarden songs are actually written on a, on a guitar that has like strings on it that will shred your fingers because they're so rusty. But they had that sound. It's hurting me just thinking about it. I can't imagine. <laughs> I break <laughs> strings all the time, so I know I'm like, but it's that sort of stuff. I mean, obviously, uh, um, Kurt Cobain was very famous for playing a Sears guitar. You know, that barely stayed in tune. Radio Shack speakers. Is, is that what it was? Yeah, it was like crazy. Talking about composition, Man in the Box was almost anti-80s with its composition. Most of the guitar riffs and the song structures were all based around fourths and fifths. Uh, the guitarist yeah, right, kind because- of abandoned the root. I was just going to say because he very famously did it on a, on a song on Jar of Flies. It, it's a I think it's called Nutshell, where it basically starts the whole riff starts I believe on the fourth, which is kind of weird, but because it's in sync with the drums, it works really well. You know, that has to be just Jerry Cantrell's brain of how can I make this song sound dirty when I'm basically the only guitarist. Right. Yeah. So what do we? So, th- oh, sorry. Go ahead. I was I was going to say. Well, our, so should we jump into our thoughts about face uh, facelift? And- yeah, that's right where I was going. So you read okay. my mind. Yeah, no, we're <laughs> same page. Nineteen ninety facelift. Watch out for the clown on the cover. <laughs> this, you know. So listening back to this album for this podcast, I had similar feelings as I did when I first came out, and that is, there are some absolute classics on here, and there's also some songs where I'm like, next. You know what I mean? I don't know if that's sacrilege, but it's it's a great intro, but they also have those songs where it kind of meanders a little bit. And that's, I don't know if that's going to piss off some people, but I guess the answer is that I, I love parts of it, and then parts of it are like, hmm, I don't know. 
No, I agree with you 100%. I just wanted to stay silent to make you as uncomfortable as possible (laughs) while making those statements. I was like, oh, shit. No, I'm with you, though, 100%. Like, Facelift is a great introductory album for Alice in Chains, but it is by no means their finest work. Agreed. I think there's a reason the majority of people know Alice in Chains from the greatest hits that came out right around 2000. Because the best songs on the albums and the EPs kind of make up the overall essence of Alice in Chains. When I listen to Sea of Sorrow, it's a good song, but I started to realize how many Sea of Sorrow exists in Jerry Cantrell's history, especially on the newer albums. I feel like I've heard this song five times this week. Nothing wrong with it if you're a fan of that, and I definitely am, but Man in the Box... Bleed the Freak. There's a reason why these are the songs everybody goes to when they think of Alice in Chains. Yeah, and not to be that guy, but this album basically is Man in the Box and Bleed the Freak for me. And Bleed the Freak, interestingly enough, because it was more of a preview of what the Alice in Chains sound was going to be going forward. Man in the Box is a, is a fucking great song, don't get me wrong. But it's this album is still mainly sung by one singer which makes it a little bit more one-dimensional. Now, granted, at the time, we didn't see it that way because we hadn't heard Dirt. (laughs) You know, we hadn't heard, you know, really where the band was going to go. So it's not that Facelift was a bad album. I guess I want to say that it was a really good album for the year that it came out. But because this band gets so much better as they go, it it kind of falls behind. And, And Bleed the Freak was one of the first times you start hearing that harmonized vocal and it being part of the hook and it getting just stuck in your head to the point where like you're humming it for weeks and and not even remembering what it is you're humming and so that song really stands out to me as as the top cut on the album even if man in the box was the bigger hit and i I totally understand why it was now after facelift doesn't sap come next yes you're correct that came out before dirt okay okay i'm trying to remember so sap to me was and listening back again Uh, It's an EP, and it's almost all acoustic, if I remember right. And that's another one, too, where when I listen to it now, I appreciate it. There's parts of it I do like, um, but I'm not in love with it. I will say, though, that I absolutely love Ann Wilson of Heart on, I think she's the guest vocals on the, the first song, Brother. That was brilliant. I love that. Yeah, that was done really well. Brother was Brother's awesome, and Am I Inside? was really cool as it just kind of more of an atmospheric it's an atmospheric album it's mm-hmm. not even an album but uh, it's an atmospheric ep and it's one of those deals where it gives us a little bit more of a preview of the elements that we're going to hear on dirt yeah. and that that's all it really was i tend to view eps as kind of like previews or like demos you know so to speak when you listen to an ep like that you're kind of like wow if you were just like a meathead and you're like, no, I'm just here for the riffs, like the heavy, you know, the, the heavy curb stomping riffs, you might hate an EP like Sap. And that is specifically why it's an EP and not they didn't they didn't stretch it out to a full length. Uh, because, you know, I think that they at this point were still like, we're not sure if the fans like the melodic side of Alice in Chains or if they just like the, the, the gritty, heavy stuff. When it comes to Alice in Chains, because... For a long time, they didn't have a lot of output, right? They had three main albums. And so I know for me as a fan that you end up counting Sap and then later on Jar of Flies almost like 
well, we got something. You know what I mean? Like, you, I think that's the reason why so many people go back and check out Sap and, and Jarflies because it's like, man, they didn't, they didn't put out a lot of songs. You know, you get, get take it what you can get. Yeah, I agree. And it's kind of funny too to see that type of tenacity on the part. It's either on the part of the band or on the part of the record label. But just to give the listeners and the fans more engaging content more quickly. You know, right. like you look at, I mean, back then in the early 90s, it was acceptable to wait two years, between two or three years between albums coming out. And you didn't necessarily have to worry back then about being forgotten about or, you know, people moving on to the next thing. And so I think it was really cool that they did give us EPs between albums, that they did give us more content. Whereas, you know, I mean, now in 2019, you know, like you said, Jason, you put out two episodes a week, like consistent content. We put out an episode every single week which is like almost impossible sometimes. And right. because we're always worried, or at least I am always worried that if we don't put out consistent content that we're going to get forgotten about or yeah. that, you know, people will lose interest. And so it's funny to hear something back then almost have a more modern sort of approach to delivering content in a, in a, in a regular fashion. Yeah, I agree. Also, I think too, you know, it was pretty brave for them to put out a really mellow down album like Sap in an era where it, it, it just nobody else did that. I mean, you either did Unplugged. I don't even know if Unplugged was at a thing at the time, but you know what I mean? It was like that was Unplugged before Unplugged, right? Yeah, totally. I think Unplugged came around 93. Okay. I'm just pulling that off the top of my head. It could be totally wrong, but <laughs> Unplugged was in 95. Was it? And that was shortly before because Nirvana did it in 94. And I'm gonna make sure I'm. Oh, well, I was just talking about the, the show, not the uh, the show. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm compl- I was thinking of Allison Chains. Go. Oh, okay. You were thinking was- on topic, and I was thinking. On- <laughs> <laughs> Is there another band other than Allison Chains that we think of their entire discography as the albums and the EPs? Yeah, you know, for me, it seems like lately a lot of bands when they put out an EP, it's cover songs, right? It's something for Record Store Day that they kind of just put out a limited number, but not a not all original music like this. And most bands don't really do this anymore, do they? Not really. Not that I've seen. If they do, they're older bands that kind of have the older mindset. Because to me, an EP is just kind of a half step. It's like a one point five, right? You know, or or whatever. Like a, like a way to lead you in. Or in certain cases, a band will put out an EP because they're like, this material just doesn't fit in our mm-hmm. overall catalog. And I think that's very much true with Sap, uh, that it's it's an EP that they're like, we don't know what to do with these songs. If we put a whole album out like this, we might lose people. But, you know, as an EP, it's it's fine. And Hailstorm does that every... What they do is they, they put out a, a proper album and then... In between albums, they put out—I forget what they called them—but basically, they're EPs of covers. Yeah. And so they've they've covered Metallica and you know Marilyn Manson and everybody like that. But again, it's it wouldn't fit on on their proper albums. Actually, I think Stone Sour does that as well. Where they, they do, yeah, it, yeah. Which, but it's mostly kind of like for Record Store Day thing, you know. Yeah, I mean, whatever they're doing is working. You know, mm-hmm. uh, it's not my preference. I get a little frustrated you know if i pay if i pay money for something i don't know if anybody else still buys records or not but uh to me if i buy like a seven inch or a a 10 inch vinyl or something on record store day i'm a little irritated if like it's like one new song like a new single and then it's like eight cover songs Uh, i'm just kind of like uh okay i mean it's it's okay (laughs) if it's a band that like like we just did it between the buried and me episode and i loved hearing their covers album uh, but it was like a full-fledged release. It wasn't like kind of more of a gimmicky deal. And it's not to say that 
those I mean obviously whatever those bands are doing they're doing it more successfully than I'm doing in my career but uh, <laughs> so just have to throw that side note out there you know uh, they've sold more units than I ever have but yeah I, I really appreciated it more whenever it was the band kind of either experimenting with their sound or they were giving us a preview I'm, I'm even okay with an EP where like two of the songs end up on the full length that comes out a year later yeah 1992 dirt holy shit i think it's safe to say that the reason why we're talking about alice in chains today is because of dirt you're not wrong i know for me personally uh dirt was a it was one of the greatest albums of that year it continues to be one of the greatest seattle you know alice in chains albums obviously seattle's that era 1990s i just for me it's it's their masterpiece um Every song on there is so it stands out. It, it, it's creative. It's heavy. It's beautiful. It's heartbreaking. Everything is thrown into this album. This is the album that taught me Lane wasn't just a singer with a different attitude. He actually wrote some of the, at least the foundations of some of the biggest songs. Angry Chair, Wood. He may have actually had a piece in Junkhead, too, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, it looks like he's credited on one, two, three, four, five, six, seven of the tracks. Um, some of them he co-wrote with, with Kentrell, but yeah. Can you even name a better album opener than Them Bones? I mean, holy <laughs> shit. Like, if you loved Facelift, you they've topped that album with that song. You're two, You're two minutes into the new album. And you've already got a better vibe going than you had on the entire previous album. That's not very common. Like me being kind of a kind of a fanboy music listener that only likes shit to be the same. You know, the band's first album's the best one, and that's what it's supposed to sound like. I'll go on and on for hours about that stuff. But in this particular case, this band has completely outdone themselves in one song. And then there's the rest of the album. Yeah. <laughs> like, you know, it's kind of like the first time I ever heard Battery uh, by Metallica. You know, like, it, it's 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 up there, you know, where yep. you're like, oh, my God. Like, you, you just did everything you did on the other album in two minutes, and now I've still got another hour to go. <laughs> and, uh, and, yeah, this album is perfectly sequenced. I mean, just the transition between Them Bones and Damn That River. You know, you go into Down in a Hole. You go into Godsmack. Uh, angry chair and then wood closes closes it off in just as epic of a fashion that them bones opened it so we all love this album so pick your top two tracks of oh, this album shit. top two rooster really okay them bones nice this is really hard uh, i gotta pick two out of 13 uh huh. i can tell you're not gonna pick godsmack i'm not gonna pick godsmack <laughs> just out of principle Fuck. I, see, you're making me choose between Them Bones, Wood, and Angry Chair. Mm, angry Chair. That's a, that's a good one. I'm thinking I'm thinking I'm going to do Angry Chair and Wood because they ended off. And they ended off in such a spectacular fashion that I'm just literally ready to hit play again when yeah. the CD's over. If anybody in 2019 knows what I'm talking about, when a CD ends and you have to start it over. Um, <laughs> you know that thing's got repeat on it, right? Actually, actually, in my case, in my case, it was like sweet. I can just take the tape out and turn it over and put it back in, <laughs> and I'm already rewound. Uh, that's yeah, like those two songs end the album in such a spectacular fashion. I mean, Wood is one of the catchiest songs, but 
angry chair is just so heavy and oppressive that like and they hit you with that twin vocal attack which was like one of the biggest sells of the album and largely is the Allison Chain sound as we know them today you know like you can't well normally I would say you can't replicate that sound but technically they did uh, but over and over, over and over again, and over again. <laughs> with a different guy even uh, but just the way this album is those those vocals are so almost mind bending like it's, it's almost like trippy the way they sound together and the way they kind of play off of each other and um, it, it gives a much stronger vocal approach for the album as a whole than what you would had on Facelift which was bit largely just Lane singing which was fine but that's the difference between like a band that's good and a band that's great I think we've all picked different songs here so obviously I could pick any any one of these tracks 13 tracks Angry Chair for a long time that was my that was my song. I love that song and the, the way that they bend the guitar and oh, yeah. the harmonizing. Uh, but the songs I keep coming back to, uh, "Down in a Hole" is just so depressing and so it, it's a mellow song that's angry, and it's and it's it, it says a lot about how he sings those lyrics. And it's just one of the songs where I absolutely love. But my favorite song, and I was listening to it this week over and over again, again. Um, is rain when I die, and it, that's a, that's another mid-tempo song that just gets to me gets angrier as it goes along, and by the end of it, he is just belting that out. And it's I don't know, there's something magic. It's funny because when I hear rain when I die, I'm reminded of when I used to commute from SeaTac over to Sierra at the time, and uh, I'd be in stop and go traffic, just pissed off, and dirt was on the radio, and I'll never forget this. I was screaming it in my car. And you know how when you look ahead and you can see someone's rear view mirror and you can see their eyeballs? This lady was looking at back at me like I was an insane person. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God, there's this crazy metalhead behind me and he's screaming. <laughs> yeah, because it was like in the middle of summer, my, my, my windows are rolled down and this album was cranked, but it was just soothing my soul. It was just something that I needed to listen to as I was commuting and... Uh, and uh, yeah, so Rain when I but again I could pick any song. I like Sick Man as well because of that that kind of the the drumming and the riff is like crazy. It's like very unique. So a classic album, man. It's awesome. It's a perfect album. I'll say it. We don't say it too often, but it is a yeah. perfect album. Nothing they could change about it to make it better. I, I would agree. Even the B sides and even sort of the lesser known songs, I think fit within you know their. Uh, they're they're just I don't know this whole album just fits together it's awesome they're the lesser known songs but nothing on this album sounds like filler very often you'll listen to a record and half of it is really good and the other half feels like the songs they picked to take up space so they could put out a full length album this does not sound that way it does not feel that way this is the first time that you get a glimpse into the Whatever Lane and Jerry are tapping into when they put these songs together, I remember when we talked to Chad Kent, he talked about Nathan, that he was able to let the drums breathe and mm. let the atmosphere of the song be what it was without just taking up all the attention with the guitar. I feel like Jerry and Lane have a way when those two minds, those two voices got together. What you got out of it has not been recreated and the closest thing we're going to get to it is the fact that Jerry Cantrell is still writing music. Right. I would be remiss if we didn't talk about Jar of Flies. 
You guys yes. are murdering my no EP rule. <laughs> well, I, 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 again, I, I have to put my hand up for this. It's like, because Jar of Flies is, it's, it's a half an hour long, it's seven songs, and it's just excellent. And again, it, it's, I think it's way better than Sap. I think it's got more energy. It, the songs are better. Um, I mentioned Nutshell previously, and that's uh, that's just track number two, and that just has a simple guitar chord progression that every single time I pick up an acoustic guitar, that's what I play. I love that track. Um, that's a great track. Also, I want to mention too, I think it's a No Excuses, where it has this drum start to it, which kind of reminds me a little bit of Stuart Copeland from The Police because it's so snappy. Uh, it's just a, it's a brilliant album. We talked to Toby Wright at Rockin' Pod this year. He mentioned that the production process for this album started with, hey, Toby, can we come to the studio? We got some songs. And then after they showed up, he asked Jerry about the songs he had. And the response he got was, yeah, I don't have any. Oh, really? So do you mind if we just jam? So what we got out of Jar of Flies was Alice in Chains jamming in the studio being recorded. Remember what I said about the emotion, whatever Jerry and Lane are tapped into, and it's the band as a whole. I don't want to take away from one person because I can't think of another band that has a drummer that plays this way, bass that sounds like this, guitar and vocals together, and it's also the one band I can think of where no one really complains that the lead singer doesn't primarily sing. I don't even have words for this part of the discography because... (laughs) You need to listen to Jar of Flies if you haven't. It has I Stay Away on it. It has Nutshell. I think they were somewhere else than where they were on Facelift. I just don't think I'm allowed to go there. I think it largely succeeds because it's an actual Alice in Chains release. Regardless of how it was created or what the circumstances were on how they came up with those songs, I think it succeeds where Sap didn't in the sense that you are basically getting a continuation of this band's sound. Like, yeah, sure, is there a little bit more experimentation in it? Sure, because they're just jamming. They're just going with what worked at that exact moment. But these, this album still has a little bit more of the grit that Alice in Chains was known for. If I had to pick between the two EPs, I probably would still go with Sap. I know it's kind of a weird. Uh, really? Mm. Yeah, it's kind of a weird, kind of a weird digression. You can get out of my house. <laughs> All right. Well, <laughs> you guys have fun I mean, doing the rest of the episode. But I mean, Sap is a very depressing, low energy album, and I and is that the reason why you dig it? That's why more? I like it because it's yeah. very dark. Yeah, that makes sense. Jar of Flies is a little bit more positive, uh, in the sense that. You know, like I stay away is a little positive, and I mean, I'm just the kind of guy that doesn't go to hard rock and metal for the positive vibe. Uh, even though I listen to like dream pop and shit like that, but like it's still like when I'm listening to a band like Alice in Chains, I'm usually listening to them when I'm in a bad mood, and the idea isn't necessarily to cheer me up. Right. You know, it's just to kind of revel in your own shit, I guess, <laughs> so to speak. <laughs> uh, th- I mean, that, that's why bands like this are so are, are so universal because they are putting to music feelings that we all already have yeah. you know uh, so whenever a song like I Stay Away comes on I'm just kind of like okay yeah cool <laughs> you know we're on a farm and you know there's there's birds lifting off from a lake you know like that's the that's the kind of visual I get from it and I'm just like I don't know man this just really isn't my thing I want to go back to City Street getting rained on um, and you get a little bit of that in Jar of Flies but 
to me, sap is is ultimate as far as like me reveling in my own shit, if that's a thing. And what's cool is that in the later years, they've been packaging those two EPs together. So if you go and you buy the vinyl, you get both, which yes. is a together. That is a pretty great album, you know, for sure. The, the one thing I want to mention before we move on, though, from Jar Flies and Dirt is that we would be remiss to not mention one of the best soundtrack songs that they ever made, which was uh, What the Hell Have I? Oh, yeah. Or the last action hero soundtrack. I'm really glad you brought that up because I probably wouldn't have on my own. Yeah, I think it ended up on the box set, but uh, for a it while, is. It's you in the music. It it's in the music vault. In the music vault. Okay, cool. But I love that song, the, the sitar sound that they got. Yeah. It's cool. Yeah, it's really cool. And what's interesting, too, about that music vault, if, if we can talk about that for a second, there's actually a point and click adventure game in the music vault on the last what? disc. Yeah. Is it really? I'm not kidding at all. Well, like, I should live stream that. <laughs> yeah, you have to. Uh, you have to rescue all the band members. I think from hell. It's been a really? few years. Yeah, it's like make sure to play it on your Win ninety eight machine because it will not. You can't just pop it in your PC and play it now. But back whenever yeah. that came out, I remember putting it in and it being like, "There's extra content on this disc." And I put it in, and it was an, it was an actual like point and click, like a like a mist uh, type of game. And yeah, your huh. your whole thing is to rescue all the band members' souls from hell. Uh, it's not the best game I've ever played in my life, sure, but sure. the fucking novelty is yeah, <laughs> like through awesome. the roof. But uh, it beats the hell out of Aerosmith's uh, point-and-click roller coaster thing. Yeah, I don't think it's better than Ed Hunter though that uh, Iron Maiden put out. I don't know if you ever played Ed Hunter. Isn't that a first-person shooter type thing? Yeah. So you, yeah, you you basically chase Ed through all these different time periods. Huh. <laughs> it's it's fun. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah. But uh, no, what the hell am I is is a really cool song, and I remember too because I actually had bought the Music Vault before I had all the Alice in Chains albums, so a lot of those songs were like really new to me, and I remember actually being pissed off that I couldn't find that song on an album. Yeah, uh, it's, after it's, that, it's it's such a great song. It should have been on one of their albums. It's it you know. But uh, the reason I mentioned the game is I believe that that song actually plays as the background music for the game. Hmm. So I wouldn't be able to live stream it because I'd get a copyright claim in like 10 seconds. <laughs> I don't know, man. We play music on our show the whole time we're talking. And yeah, I think I think true. the fact that we're talking over it defeats the waveform, like beats the waveform and they don't see it. Yeah. But yeah. And, yeah. Except that one time. <laughs> we played like 15. <laughs> we played like 15 seconds of a song. <laughs> we played 15 seconds of a song and bam. Copyright. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It, 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 I have to worry about that all the time. That's why you make your own music and use your own I, music as background. You are absolutely right. <laughs> are we ready to talk about Alice in Chains? I think we are. The album, not the band. We've been doing that the whole time. The band and the album. Starts off with Grind. It's not another Dirt. It's not another Them Bones. But it's okay. After Jar of Flies, I'll take this. Plus it has yeah. Sludge Factory on it. This, this, I remember when this came out, bought it day one huge anticipation and I remember sitting in my car listening to it going, huh okay, you know it's hard to follow up dirt that's the thing, it's hard to follow up dirt so, this is not dirt it's another release by Allison Chains <laughs> I'm here for it I love every minute of it it has heaven beside you on it wait, wait, you do love this album? I do really? okay I don't think there's really anything wrong with it. I think it gets a bad rap because it's not dirt, and I think that's unfair. You've got Heaven Beside You, Frogs, Again, Sludge Factory, Grind. Oh. You can't say it's as good as dirt, but you also can't say it's bad 
because it has just as many memorable songs by Allison Chains on it. My favorite track on this actually is the the hidden track on here, the last one, uh, Over Now. Um, now, they, they played this on Unplugged, but for a while, this was kind of like the the unplayed song for a while. And, and that's the one that's more like their previous albums, I think. I thought that was Queen of the Rodeo. Oh! <laughs> oh my God! Yeah, is that wait? That's not on this album though. Where? What was that on? It was on the live album for a while, and then it eventually showed up on the box set in a studio recording, basically That's a demo. Right. Oh my God! I haven't heard that in a long time. Wow! And we're gonna pause for Jason to listen to Queen of the Rodeo. <laughs> <laughs> Three and a half minutes later. <laughs> yeah, I'm definitely not in the Joe camp on this one. This album was largely a stinker for me. Uh, it's not a stinker. It doesn't suck. They didn't fuck up. It's not like that. It's just, it's not dirt. It's not your Alice in and Chains. Dirt, and dirt was the perfect album. It's more like facelift, but yes. I think I like it more I than agree. facelift. I would just agree. because just the band's experience, you know, they're going to put out a better album than their debut, you know, just because of the passage of time alone. Uh, but yeah, there's just not as many memorable songs on this one. And it's definitely one of those, like, when I'm listening to it, I can't just put it on and, like, keep painting the garage or, you know, uh, do, like, a project or whatever. It's an album that in order for me to really enjoy it, I have to sit down with the lyrics and pay attention to it. And, like, sometimes I have time for that, but, like, I have three kids, so I don't have any time. Uh, so whenever I listen to um, whenever I listen to something like the self-titled Allison Chains, I'm like, this is cool, but I kind of just want to hear the hits, and I don't really want to jump into the deep dives too much. And I think this album's cool, but it's definitely not going to be my first choice. Um, I was talking to a buddy of mine from another podcast earlier today, and I was like, yeah, you know, I was checking out, you know, this album. And he's like, yeah, the problem is, is I went to listen to that album a few times recently, and I just end up listening to Dirt, you know, and I'm like, yeah, I could I could see that. Yeah, you know, that's cool that you like it, actually, because that's that's I don't think that's the common consensus, but um yeah, that's interesting. That's it's cool. You know, <laughs> it's cool you were able to, to to dig in there and find you know stuff that wasn't filler for you. It's a deep cut type of album. That's the problem is that like you can, again, it, it's not an album that I'm listening to all the time. But I feel like if you sit down and do the work, you can find some enjoyable stuff. The problem is, as a music fan, like to be a music reviewer is one thing. To be, to be a music fan, the music fan shouldn't have to do the work to find the good. If that makes sense. Like, it should just kind of be out there for you. So, and it is that way on Dirt. Alice in Chains, you kind of have to really kind of put yourself in a certain mindset to like it. I'm being really nice. Like, I don't think that the album's like a pile of shit, but like, I don't, uh, I, I don't hate it, but I don't love it either. Isn't that the same thing you end up doing with Load and Reload, though? Yeah, but I mean, I would even argue that Load and Reload had better songs than this. You could sit down and like, listen to those albums it, today. Yeah. I, mean, I could I'm, listen to this. I'm not going to, but yeah, you could. <laughs> <laughs> you could say that. Why don't you step into the house that Jack built? Sorry, I'm in my jar of flies. So this was it, right? I mean, this was basically it for the original Alice in Chains. This was well, it. I would say, though, that, again, I, I know you guys typically on your show don't cover live albums and, and, and compilations, but you, and we mentioned it briefly, Unplugged. And I think it's important for us to mention that Unplugged was a huge huge Alice in Chains album. I'm going to allow it because this and Nirvana are considered to be the pinnacle of the yeah. unplugged release. Yeah, I agree. And, you know, and it, it says a lot about Alice in Chains. Obviously, they were doing acoustic 
songs anyway, so this wasn't a huge stretch. But they also brought in some of the songs from, obviously, the Alice in Chains album and some of their heavier stuff and made them fit within that format. I mean, it just showed how brilliant they were. Uh, I recently rewatched it for this podcast, and I-, I was taken aback by several things. One, just how raw and vulnerable Lane is on that show. It's heartbreaking to watch because you know he's not going to live much longer. It's not going to, yeah, it's not going to be much further after that. But it's a great performance. I almost feel like when I was watching it, like, wow, this is, they're not really performing. He's just kind of, we're watching him do poetry almost sometimes during that. It was a really wild performance. But yet the band around him is fantastic. Uh, a huge shout out to the bassist, Mike uh, Inez, because several of these songs, his bass playing is all over that's like in those songs and it really comes through in the unplugged version of them um so anyways i just want to kind of mention i yeah, don't know no, what you guys he's feel about unplugged. no it is he's he's exposed i'm basically just tearing open his soul for us yeah. to see in that one performance and that's what i liked about the unplugged series across a lot of the bands that they that did it but yeah like joe said there's something about the nirvana and the allison chains where you're almost feeling like you're seeing the definitive version of some of those songs. Yeah. Um, even the acoustic version of Wood, which I went in thinking, like, how are they, how they going to play that song without any distortion? You know, like, right, that doesn't yep. make any sense. But uh, it, it, it worked. That's why Unplugged was so great, though, because the original premise was not an artist showing up and playing acoustic songs. It was taking someone who is known for not doing that and taking away all of their crutches. You don't have distortion. Yep. Can you actually show up and play music? And, and they and did. Are the songs good, right? Because there's that's a with a distortion and, and all the noise behind you. It's easy to to skate by on a weak song, but on when it's acoustic band, it's just you out there, you know. And then you get your Kurt Cobain's and your Allison Chains that show up and just sneak a little bit of distortion and effects in because, well, you didn't see that coming. Yeah, I joked about that, especially on the Nirvana one. It's worse than it is even on the Alice in Chains. Well, you're like, yeah, they they definitely plug some shit in for some of this. But you wouldn't have Chris (laughs) Squire show up and tell him to turn off his chorus pedal either. Right. Yeah, and I get it. But it was still just kind (laughs) of, it's just still kind of funny that like, yeah, there's still electronic elements. It's unplugged, man. You're not allowed to use all those effects. Do you know who I am? Right. Do you see this Rickenbacker (laughs) bass? I am Chris Squire of Yes. Yeah, uh, that, that's true. G- speaking of which, did you guys ever see the uh, the Cure one when they they performed? Yeah, yeah. Where they basically just had the children's toy, you know, like little musical instruments. That was, it was not a brilliant performance, but I appreciated what they're going for. Now, it, did you watch the Corn Unplugged where the Cure showed up and did a mashup? No, I had no idea. You need to really? look that up. The opening of the show, they do blind, but they do it like a samba. Really. <laughs> Okay, I'll have to check that out. That was very interesting. Yeah, I think the whole thing's up on YouTube or something. On the entire orchestra is yeah. wearing, like, rabbit masks. Okay, I'll so check that out. So it's yeah, got that Wicker Man thing yeah. going on. Yeah, I think they oh, match really? up Corn's Make Me Bad with uh, The Cure. Um, what song did he sing? It's been, like, a year since I watched that. Uh, but anyway, yeah, it's... He sang Freak on a Leash with Amy Lee. That was... Hmm. Could have done without that. But yeah, anyway. Uh, so... <laughs> <laughs> back on a band that we do like. Uh, so... Following the Unplugged performance, that's really, I mean, I know they toured for a while after that, but this was basically it for the band. As far as releases go, I don't know what was going on in everybody's personal lives, but I know Jerry Cantrell went off and did a whole bunch of solo stuff after this, which Mm -hmm. is actually pretty good. 
uh, if you're if you're into stuff like Zap or Jar of Flies or whatever, it's like a lot of stuff like that, hmm. and uh, you know, full albums. And a lot of people basically were like, "Well, I guess this is just what Allison Chains is going to be." And then in 2002, you know, signal the record scratch or whatever. But uh, Lane Staley was found dead from a heroin overdose. I think. In yeah. That, I, I mean, mean I, I, I don't even know what to say to that. Like, it's just. Um, we all wanted Alice in Chains to come back and perform. There was a time yeah. where it was because Lane couldn't or wouldn't. I didn't know him personally, so I can't comment. But then when he's gone, it's, well, I guess Alice in Chains is done then. And it, and they were done for a while. I mean, for like, what, 10, 14 years, something like that? It was a while. Yeah. In between their last album and a reunion. Well, I know. I they, know f- oh, go ahead. I was just going to say, I know for me personally, um, you know, I'd given up hope on an Alice in Chains anything, really, you know, and it, it's just one of those things where a lot of those bands, you know, like, I, I guess I would feel the same way, like, for instance, these days with Soundgarden. I I don't think, I'd be shocked if another Soundgarden comes back. Uh, how are you going to replace somebody, you know, uh, a great front person like that? And uh, that's not to say that it can't happen. I, everyone always looks back to ACDC. And, you know, the transition from Bon Scott to uh, to Brian Johnson was brilliant. But the thing is that they had really strong music to make that happen. And they didn't try to replace Bon Scott, who cannot be replaced, right? They got somebody totally different. And I think that's the reason why it worked. The songs were strong. So who knows? Who knows if, if Soundgarden will come back and, you know, we transitioned into a reunion or a reboot of Alice in Chains, right? Fairly recently. 2009. Well, what I think the big difference between like a Soundgarden and Alice in Chains is is, as horrible as this is going to sound, and I don't mean it with any disrespect to Lane at all, but he was in a sense at this point, or at least at the last point in the band's career, only part of the puzzle. So in the case of like a Soundgarden, you you can't replace Chris Cornell because he was the whole package as far as the vocal delivery of that band goes. Whereas Jerry Cantrell had already been putting out shit that sounded kind of like Alice in Chains for years. So it's not impossible to make the jump that like, well, maybe maybe they could replace Lane and it might be okay. Now, historically for most bands, it's not okay. It ends up not being okay. <laughs> for some right. reason, this worked. I remember the first performances after they reunited where they invited up a lot of their peers. Like, I remember James Hetfield went up and played Wood. But I noticed right away that the songs sounded the same. And the camera, for whatever reason, just stayed on Jerry. And I kept asking myself, who's singing? Because it Hmm. sounds like Lane. It sounds disgustingly like Lane. Well, I know for me, whenever the... the, I forget what the, the... The reboot album was, what, Black Gives Way to Blue. I bought it when it came out, and... Actually, I was pleasantly surprised. Uh, even listening to this album today, I I think actually it's pretty good. I think I definitely like it more than the pre, you know, the the self-titled Alice in Chains album. I would largely agree because first of all, there's two different parameters going on here. When you're listening to self-titled Alice in Chains, it's the original band, and so you're comparing it to Dirt. Whenever you get to Black Gives Way to Blue, it's been 15 years since, or 14 years since we've heard an Alice in Chains record. You now know that there's a new lead singer, and you're just asking William Duvall, and you're asking yourself, is this going to sound like Alice in Chains? 
And within the first 10 seconds, you're like, oh, God, yes, okay, it does. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and so you're almost satisfied on a purely... Um, cosmetic? Yes. You're, yeah. you're satisfied on a purely cosmetic level. Yeah, I would agree. I think that, that this is... I mean, this picks up. It has energy uh, that, the, that the previous album lacked. Um, you know, All Secrets Known, I liked immediately. Check My Brain is a really kick-ass tune. Uh, Last of My Kind, Your Decision. Just the first four songs on this... I think are really good Alice in Chains songs. And, uh, you know, you don't have to apologize. You don't have to say, you know, but doesn't have a lane. No, these are these are good tunes. So with William Duvall, Elephant in the Room, is it weird that they found somebody that sounded as much like Lane as they did? They don't sound exactly <laughs> the same. And it's weird because when I first heard these albums, I was like, oh, my God, he sounds exactly the same. But then this right. week I had to listen to all of it. So I was like, OK, so it's not exactly the same. Most of what you hear that you think sounds the same is Jerry Cantrell. Yeah. Which to yeah. me gave me a whole new perspective on the older releases. I had to go back and listen and say, wow, a lot of what I thought was Lane was Lane and Jerry. Yep. Yep. I think we all kind of were surprised to hear that. It's like, oh, wow. Okay. So Jerry was more of the sound than we realized. You know, a lot of bands do this, though. Look at Journey. You know, Journey did the exact same thing. They get a guy who sounds just like Steve Perry, fantastic singer. Uh, Judas Priest obviously did this very famously. Tim the Ripper Owens. Yeah. And so, and to your point, having listened to all of this stuff this week, going back to Sap and hearing Ann Wilson of Heart, part of me was like, what wouldn't have been cool? If they would have instead of gone for someone who sounds just like Lane, but actually just go the opposite route and get like a kick-ass female singer or somebody who would just put a stake in the ground and say, this is the new band going forward. You know, I, I almost to your point, maybe maybe this is your point. I kind of wish that they did that, that they did, went the ACDC route and said, you know what? We don't need somebody who sounds just like Lane. We're going to get somebody who is going to do Alice in Chains 2.0. I agree with what you're saying, but I would more agree with it in 1996 or 1997, uh, right after, right after they'd put out the self-titled, and then let's say they got another singer for whatever reason. You know, they were in the same place, and they're like, "Well, this words." I think I think the time is when the band is still fresh to reboot the band. But what we're suggesting too is a little risky. And not a little risky. It's one of the most risky things you can do as an established band is yeah. to hire on a new lead singer that takes the band in a totally different direction. Because even though we all know, like even as a, as a singer of a band myself uh, for a while, it's not really the singer's fault why the music goes the way that it goes unless they're like a principal songwriter. But they're largely still going to get blamed for whatever changes do take place. That's and, true. We it, saw that with Motley Crue big time. 100%. It's like, why, how is this? How is it the singer's fault? But for whatever reason, music fans see it that way. And so I think that they could have gotten away with it better than they would have gotten away with it in 20, like in 2009, because it had been 14 years. You can't reboot the band after 14 years. Everybody that's checking your band out now, it's just because they loved you back in the 90s. Yeah, fair point. You know, fair so point. you can't, you can't really, I mean, you, you can do whatever you want, but whatever might be successful is... Uh, Jerry Cantrell can do whatever he wants. Jerry Cantrell can do I've whatever I've listened to Degradation Trip 1 and 2. He can do whatever he wants, and it will sound amazing. 
I think this is really good. I don't know if it's amazing. I actually don't think this album is that great for the new band. This record succeeds at being a Jerry Cantrell fronted release that has vocal harmonies in it that kind of remind me of older Alice in Chains. It was not until the next record that I said, okay, this is Alice in Chains. Are we ready for it? Sure. 2013, The Devil Put Dinosaurs Here. <laughs> can, can, it, can, can we do a show of hands? Who thinks that's probably one of the dumbest album titles of all time? I hate that title. Can I tell like, you? Can I tell you what it means? I oh I I, I you was know what more, it means. I, I, I was raised evangelical. Me too. I know exactly. Me too. What, yeah. Yeah. Okay. I'm just gonna see, you guys, see you guys in a minute. Is that a reason? <laughs> is that a reason why guys go on to become metalheads? I, I feel so. like there's like a direct connection there. Uh, so, yeah. Well, for any listeners that don't know, I'll keep this very brief. There's a certain contingency of the population that doesn't believe that the Earth is millions of years old or billions of years old. They don't believe in evolution. They don't believe in modern day science. So the explanation for why dinosaur bones exist is that the devil went back and put dinosaur bones in the ground in order to fool people into thinking that the earth was millions of years old. So I'm going to go ahead and let you all just chew on that for a while, and we will move on. Which, okay, but when you explain that, right, that you're like, okay, that's interesting, right? There's, there's a discussion to be had there. But without context, when this came out, I was just like, come on, really? This is this is that's the album title that Queens of the Stone Age would use. Right. And they would get away with it because they're quirky and weird, right? But for Alice in Chains, it's just ah, I hate that title. I don't know. It would have been fine if it had been like the name of their first demo or something right. like back when they were all young dudes and they're like, Look at how weird we are, you know? Yeah. But yeah, no, I, I agree. Like this is a very strange they should have just called the album Hollow, you know, off of their single. Yep. Let me talk about Hollow for a minute. So I heard Hollow on the radio because it had been quite a few years. It had been about four years since they put out an album. And for whatever reason, I think my iPod died or my CD player ran out of batteries or something. I've always had a bad, I've always had bad luck with like in-car music players. So like a lot of the times I drive around in headphones, which is for some reason is still legal in Missouri. <laughs> and uh, I, my music player died and I was like, all right, fuck it. So I'll just turn the radio on and see what's on the radio. And this song comes on, and I was like, is this an Alice in Chains song that like was like some B-side that I've never heard before? You had the same reaction I did when I heard Say Yeah by The Urge at 6.30 in the morning the first time. Well, yeah, it's like, but I was like, no, it can't be old Alice in Chains because it doesn't sound old. Like right. the, the riffs are too heavy. Like the, the production quality is so different now than it was then. It sounds super modern. But it sounds more like Alice in Chains than I've heard in a long time. And I was like, man, this song is dark, it's heavy, it's slow, it's sludgy. It, it just it, it hits all the right little bullet points of what you would want from an Alice in Chains song. And so it really set up an album that, again, has a really stupid title. It turns out to actually be really cool. But with the stupid title, you have to like tell people that that's an album that you like. <laughs> To that note, I didn't listen to this when it came out because I couldn't get past that stupid title. <laughs> like, no, sorry, guys. I'm but, out. But, but going back for this podcast and listening to it, uh, mostly for the first time, you know, like so much, I, I always feel like I'm making excuses for these last, these later albums. And it, here's the thing. In my mind, 
I think Alice in Chains will will just always have the best, greatest hits album ever. Like they always have a couple songs off of them that are just awesome, inspired, fantastic. And then you have the slow, mid-tempo stuff that I just it, it's it doesn't have the anger and the the energy of their early stuff. That's just how I feel. This album is where I start feeling that big time, especially towards the second half. Well, these guys are like a hundred years old now too, so it's you know uh, it's <laughs> hard should, to get that aggression. That should not be an excuse because we all know that Judas Priest's last album, Firepower, was fucking amazing. Holy right? shit, was it amazing? Yeah. Holy shit, and even like Megadeth, like Dystopia, like what the hell happened? Did they discover caffeine? Because those albums are awesome. So, you know, and Rob Halford's like what seventy? I yeah. mean, so I hear what you're saying. Older bands, they lose their fire. They lose that, you know, fire in the belly, that stuff. But it doesn't have to be. Don't forget Hardwired. Well, and this is Uh, also where we have to split hairs. I think Hardwired sounds kind of tired. But anyway, uh, so this is where we split hairs, though, and say, well, how much of that righteous anger, so to speak, was Lane? And how much of it was Jerry? And just looking at these albums alone, well, Lane clearly, I mean, especially looking at, you know, just his life clearly had the bigger inner turmoil yeah Dan sure. you know it sucks too because like you you hate that this is where it, it's hard to talk about because whenever a band puts out a perfectly serviceable album like this and I'm like yeah but it's not angry and it's not anguish and it's not this or that but then you're like well this is also an individual that died and lived a very hard life and but it's yeah, like god sure. damn does it make great art you know and so uh, that's that's kind of the, the shitty part of it but I totally understand. I think musically, like if you're if you're a hardcore like guitar guy, I think I think there's more to enjoy from these albums. But if you're just a hardcore like um, like fan of music in general, I think these albums are going to sound cosmetically like Alice in Chains. But I think the original core of it is is kind of missing. A piece of it, I can agree with that. But Jerry Cantrell's here doing exactly what he did before. He's playing slow when it makes sense. He's playing faster when it makes sense. He's ominously adding to the composition as a whole. But it does sound more like just his solo work than Alice in Chains or Dirt or Facelift, Jar of Flies would sound if Lane was involved. And maybe that is because they worked so well together because they complemented each other in that essence that I talked about that I'm not allowed to understand. Sometimes I think Jerry Cantrell just writes his songs in reverse. You ever write just a basic chord structure that you think sounds good and then you try to add a vocal line to it and you end up with something that's very monotone and generic and then listen to Alice in Chains and realize that the guitar is actually very monotone and generic and it bends in a few places but the vocals go all over the place. Sometimes I wonder, yeah. does Jerry just write his songs and then flip the instrumentation? <laughs> well, and you re- you're kind of touched on something here that, you know, Alice in Chains used to be that they were very creative in their guitar riffs and musically. Like, you know, we, we mentioned uh, Angry Chair. I mean, that is just, there's nothing else like Angry Chair. And I think that they, they tried getting to parts of that. But back then, they were the whole package. And now I, I can put on... We haven't got to the third album yet, but I can put on these three albums and I wouldn't even know which one I'm listening to, let alone 
you know, when they came out or it, it, they did this all kind of, again, they're actually fairly decent albums. They just, there's very few standout tracks for me. They all serve the same purpose where I think they're trying to still sell us on the idea of we're Alice in Chains and we're back. And each of the albums, even individually, don't grow off of each other like a normal progression of bands albums would do. Instead, right. it's more like, okay, here's our 2009 release. Check it out. We're Alice in Chains. We're back. And then they come back in the 2013 release and they're like, check it out. We're Alice in Chains and we're back. And then here's 2018. Hey, we're back. And it's like, there, there's no actual musical progression between these three albums. Every single one of them feels like a reunion album. The other thing I would mention too, and I know we're not at the third album, but I really noticed it at the third album, the one that just came out um, called Rainier, Fro- Rainier Fog, is that I stopped being able to tell when it was William and when it was Jerry, that the it, I felt like the vocals were starting to really meld together in a way that Lane didn't do back in the day. That when you when you listen to their most current album compared to Dirt, Lane is there. You're 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 hearing Lane. You're hearing his pain, but you don't. You're missing all that in the current stuff. It, it's almost like it's too meld. You know, too meshed together. I think that's why I kind of feel like. I wish they did have another singer that didn't sound like Lane. That that would stand on their own. You know, would be that person who would be the front person that uh, you could kind of latch on to. So, is the modern Allison Chains missing the tragedy that Lane had? Well, you know, the, yes, maybe. I mean, I don't, you know, I don't claim to know the band, but I, I suspect that when it came time to put a band together, they probably were looking for someone who's not a heavy drug user and could probably hang out and, you know, sit on the, the tour bus with them and. You know, and that that's that's all completely reasonable for sure. Absolutely, they should do that. That that's healthy. But we all know that some of the best albums of all time have been created from conflict and from some of you know those things that put a little bit of fire in your belly. A great example of this, and it's nowhere near what your audience would would probably listen to. But you know, Fleetwood Mac's greatest album, Rumors, was created when two of of the four were getting a divorce and they couldn't stand each other. They hated each other. And they were writing songs about how much they hated each other that they then had to sing together. Yes, exactly. And so, you know, would you say, well, is it fair that you guys, that the the two marriages broke up? No, of course I would never want that. But damn, it it makes some awesome art. But can you think of another band that still showed up to write the new songs? I can't think of another one other than Fleetwood Mac. (laughs) <laughs> Meaning that Fleetwood Mac's the only band I can think of where they they were having that conflict, the relationship was ending, but then it's Monday, we still got to go to the studio and write new they songs. Still came, they still came to work, yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, that that shows their dedication towards, obviously, the craft of music and their careers and all that. I mean, for sure, that's, you know, I, I think probably the only other band that comes to mind, uh, I, I once read, I think it's Steven Tyler's autobiography from Aerosmith. And, you know, Aerosmith had a lot of turmoil, a lot of drugs back in, you know, and again, most of what we consider to be some of their best music came from that era. And it sucks that they had to go through that. But uh, so I, I don't know, getting back to Alice in Chains, maybe things are a little bit too comfortable. Um, I don't know, you know, who's I, I'm not I'm not in that camp, right? Right. And there's also that time frame that 
Jerry Cantrell wasn't releasing music. He was still visible. You could catch him in a guest appearance here and there. I'm reminded of when Dave Grohl finally talked about how he dealt with Kurt Cobain's death. And his answer was very simple. I didn't want to talk about it, so I made my own music. I wonder if Jerry's portion of that would be, Lane's not here. He was the other half of my essence, and I couldn't perform. So maybe Alice in Chains today is all the music Jerry wanted to release along the way. And I say him singularly, and I, I mean the band as a whole. I really do, because... To my knowledge, none of them did anything outside of Alice in Chains. So if the new record sounds like Jerry Cantrell's solo album, well, then that's what we would have gotten before, and I think it would have been received negatively. I liked Degradation Trip, but I don't ever hear anybody bring it up. Right. Well, and I think to sum it up, uh, you know, I know we didn't do a specific section for the last album, but we've kind of been talking about all three of them as a whole, which I think is fair. <laughs> um one of the biggest things about these albums, though, is that sure, I mean, most bands, you're damned if you do, you're damned if you don't. So if you get back together after 15 years and release an album, you maybe some of your old fan base is going to love it. Maybe they're not. But I have to at least give it to them for putting out a consistently good-sounding product mm-hmm. and not really hitting a lot of the missteps that a lot of other bands would do. But I agree with Jason in that, like, maybe this is the time where you start trying to branch out more. Like, you know, now that you know, maybe maybe put out that first album that sounds just like old Alice in Chains. And then on the next one, you kind of start incorporating your, your, your current selves into what it sounds like. Because where you get with the third album, uh, which is called Rainy Fog. It's uh, Rainier Fog. Rainier Fog, sorry. Whenever you get to Rainier Fog you've basically got I completely lost my point <laughs> well I, I would I would say and I think what you're getting at is that let's let's put it this way if they put out three more of these type of albums I think they're going to lose their base I, th- I think they lose their audience I think people will be kind of like okay what else you got you know what I mean you've been using the same bag of tricks now for 30 years right let's and hear you know something what? new and every band runs into this everyone who's in a, you know does something creative you have to you have to kind of find that spark. You have to kind of find the next thing. Uh, you know, they're certainly not alone, and some bands can do that and some can't. And, and again, not to say that these uh, these last three albums are bad. I, I actually think that they work just shuffled and randomized. There's they're uh, they're not bad. They're just not great. They've got some good playlist songs on them, sure. Which is kind of weird then, because we so we've talked about six albums by the band and some EPs. And we really only have one album that is amazing. Right. So I guess it's one of those things. Where it, in my mind, I still think of Alice in Chains as a classic band. But on the same, on the flip side, it's like, yeah, but out of six albums, I only thought one of them was truly great. So does that make them not as classic of a band as I think? Or is there a reason why we still think of them as a classic band? I think it takes a lot to write an album that can blow the audience out of the water just everything start to finish you have to listen to the whole thing it's a lot easier to write a song here and there that everybody goes back to and remembers but it's also very easy to fall into the here's the single 
here's the ballad, and here's the rest of the songs from that album that you don't really care about. Alice in Chains might be the only example of a band that puts out releases and just keeps adding to this stack of music that, as a whole, we all look back on fondly. We still listen to it. But when you look at the albums individually, you start to notice more of the holes. Yeah, I think that's fair. And again, outside of Dirt, if we were to take Dirt out of the equation and just look at the other, I guess, five albums, you know, you would have an amazing greatest hits from all those. You would basically just take two tracks, three tracks from each one of them. And a lot of bands are like that. You know, most bands are like that, where they they only have one or two good songs and the other ones are just okay. And, and that's fine. It's just that I think the reason why we are still talking about Alice in Chains today is because they made one of the greatest 90s grunge albums of all time. And it still holds up today. Do you think they're one of the greatest bands of all time? Boy, that's a tough one. Uh, they're one of the greatest Seattle bands of all time. <laughs> but, <laughs> that's fair. That's fair. Uh, you know, but, um, and, and, you know, they've, man, but not, no. I mean, it, Dirt would not be in my top 10. It, back in the 90s, it would have been. Today, I just love so much other stuff that it wouldn't, you know, it, it'd be hard for it to beat out all my Dream Theater and Opeth and, you know, um, all the other Iron Maiden albums, but, but again, it's it's a classic from the '90s, and it still gets played, and I still love it. Final thoughts on Alice in Chains, Dan? Well, I don't know if I could top that. I mean, I think that they are one of the greatest bands from their time period. I'll say that because I don't, I actually, I don't have the Seattle connection, so uh, I think they're definitely one of the best bands of the '90s, and I don't know how well that's transitioned into modern day. But if that's all that you're looking for, I don't think you can really go wrong with Alice in Chains. They're definitely a band that if you haven't heard before, I mean, number one, congratulations, you've now escaped from the cave that you were trapped in. <laughs> but if you if you haven't heard Alice in Chains, you're giving them a chance and you like 90s music, you like stuff like Soundgarden, uh, you, even stuff like Nirvana, even though I hate to make that comparison because the two bands sound really nothing alike. But if you're looking for the same sort of vibe that those sort of bands gave off, Alice in Chains should definitely be your bag, and I think you'll still enjoy the newer albums, even if they don't really hit as well as the classic stuff does. I think Alice in Chains is the best band that houses some of the greatest songwriters of all time. Unfortunately, the albums as a whole do not stand up to the greatness that is dirt. But if you are a fan of hard rock, heavy metal, grunge, classic rock, it's all there. And then you have this ambiance of these two minds that come together and create this, I still can't tell you what it is. I really think it's a level of emotion and expression and consciousness that I'm just not allowed to comprehend because I can't tell you what makes Jerry Cantrell and Lane Staley's combination so great. So for all the reasons that I just said, if you're not listening to Alice in Chains, you should be. Jason, Metal Jesus, final thoughts on Alice in Chains. Well, it, it's everything that we've said. I guess the only other thing that I would say is that Dirt and Lane's, Lane's output in Alice in Chains is just some of the most raw and brutal examples of drug addiction that has been put down into music in a way that is both 
heartbreaking, but also real. And that was what was shocking about it at the time, is that he was just completely open about it. You knew exactly what he was thinking about. And we it was we were watching it in real time. And, uh, and I think that those lyrics and those songs that they wrote still resonate with people today. We're still dealing with heroin addiction, drug abuse and all and depression and all the things that he he talked about and so that's why dirt and some of those albums still uh resonate with people today and what's your album of the week album of the week oh crap and it can't be what we're listening to it can be whatever you want it to be it can be i just try to sound like a cool guy every week and not pick what we talk (laughs) about well uh that's funny i completely forgot about that you guys do this so uh you know the album i've been listening to so much is dream theaters distance over time uh, it's their most current album. It's a return to what makes Dream Theater great. It's heavy. It's progressive. It's uh, it's over the top. It's it's everything I want from Dream Theater. So I've been listening to a lot of that. Uh, also, another one. I know you only said one, but uh, the new White Snake album is really interesting. Um, I'm an old school White Snake guy, but they have David Coverdale's built pretty much an entirely new band around him. So it has Reb Beach in it who is one of my favorite guest stars uh, in Dawkins back in the day, but he's played with a bunch of people. So uh, I've been listening to some of that. It's not, a, it's not a perfect album, but I am enjoying it. Did you have the same reaction I did when Mike Portnoy left Dream Theater? You were initially shocked, and then you said, well, obviously they're going to call Mike Mangini. I, you know what? I didn't know who that was at the time. I wasn't, really? Uh, yeah, uh, but... Uh, you know, now that he's in the band, and I'm like, wow, that was uh, that was a perfect transition. I really, really love Mike Portnoy. I, I I follow him on social media. He was such a big part of Dream Theater back in the day, and, and a reason for their success. I love the fact that he would create uh, custom playlists for every single show. So for a while, Dream Theater would never play the same show twice. And that was all because of Mike Portnoy and just his love of music, all the covers that he did. So I'm a big Mike Portnoy fan. However, that said, they've survived him and they continue to thrive. And so I'm a, I, I love him. So I was always a fan of his different way of looking at drumming. Yeah. He had a reputation for being this definitive progressive metal drummer. And when you got right down to it, he was just a hard rock guy that knew yeah. how to count to numbers other than four. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's funny because I have his, I have one of his drumming DVDs where, you know, he breaks down, I think, a liquid tension experiment. And, yes. You know, I know. And I'm never going to be able to play that, but I love watching it. Like, it's just fascinating to watch him break some of those fills down. It's like... Yeah, it's incredible. My comprehension of polyrhythms starts and stops at Pantera. Oh, okay. (laughs) (laughs) I can play in seven if you want to play in four, but, uh, you know, once we get to the end of it, we're eventually going to line up. Yeah, and so Mike Portnoy, and also, too, you know, he's such a huge fan of music. That's why I love all his side projects where he did the Beatles thing, he did the Who thing. Uh, You know, he went on, he was doing the the 70s progressive rock thing with Transatlantic, um, playing with just anyone and everyone he's such a music fan far beyond what he's known for which is the the metal and the progressive rock so yeah love i it would if he was to come back to dream theater obviously i would love it but the stuff he's been doing outside of that is great too you know for me this week when i wasn't listening to allison chains it was opeth deliverance and damnation 
Uh, the, the the perfect two albums. I love those albums. Dan brought over their behind the scenes studio recording DVD because you know that was a thing back in the early mid two thousands. Every band put out the making of, and it was mm-hmm. brilliant because we love that stuff. And I'm watching this lead singer who's clearly a different type of guitar player who can sing and growl and do whatever he wants, write these long, drawn-out compositions that fundamentally drive me insane because my initial reaction is always, you just threw a bunch of riffs together, then I start to write it down. And I realize, no, his brain's just different than mine. And I didn't know Deliverance and Damnation was kind of different from what they were known for. I didn't Uh, realize that this idea of the A-side, B-side being quiet and heavy was not what they did. You know, a a good example of, I forget, his name's Michael or Mikkel, whatever the lead singer's name is. Um, he came through on the Ghost Reveries tour here in Seattle. And so I saw him in this little tiny club, you know, Opeth on the, sh- the stage and I'm like four people deep. It's like really intimate. But anyways, what was really fascinating about him is that they're heavy and they're growling and all this. And I don't know if you've seen Opeth live before have you seen them live we actually saw them in chicago on the progressive nation tour with dream theater between the buried and me and three and opeth was most definitely the highlight of the night for us and was he talky like he's a chatterbox when i saw him extremely yeah it 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 was just before watershed came out so they were playing a lot of the songs from deliverance and damnation and then he would just talk for five minutes yeah well, the reason why I bring it up and the reason, you know, you're mentioning about how varied they are, I'll never forget this because so I'm watching them in this little club. They're heavy as shit. And then he's talking. He's like, hey, uh, he's, he's like, I love Seattle, but can you guess my favorite Seattle band? And this is an audience of, of people from Seattle, right? So, and this was, this is during Ghost Reveries. We're like, oh, yeah, yeah, here comes the Nirvana. Here comes the Allison Chains reference. And he's like, and, you know, people are shouting out names of Seattle bands. He's like, actually, it's Heart. Heart huh. is my favorite Seattle band. <laughs> and I remember thinking, what? Like, really? Here's this Swedish death metal band. And his favorite Seattle band was Heart. But knowing that and listening to Damnation and Deliverance, you can start hearing some of those 70s harmonies and the acoustic guitars and that stuff. His comment at our show right before they played something acoustic, I don't remember which song it was, he mentioned that this next song was extremely heavy and brutal and you would like it unless you know you hate death metal. It's okay though if you do. I didn't like death metal. And it was just straight acoustic, not even any well, you, complicated yeah. anything and going you on. At, you look at where he you look at where he's at now. I mean he just fully embraced the lighter side of things, you know, and it's not even light, like some of the stuff that they write on their newest albums are actually still kind of heavy. He just doesn't do the Cookie Monster over it anymore. And uh, it took me a little while to get used to those albums because I'm more of a meathead when it comes to metal and I just like, oh, heavy all the time, you know. But uh, it, t- it definitely took a while for those albums to grow on me. But man, I <laughs> I, I could never... Uh, I could never deny Opeth in any of their in any of their incarnations. Even the old stuff that he claims to hate, I'm still like, this is still really good. <laughs> like, I don't know what to tell you. Speaking of Meathead, what's your album of the week, Dan? Oh shit, we're still recording, aren't we? <laughs> oh, okay. My bad. Uh, my album of the week. Uh, I've actually gone back and uh, 
been listening to uh, to Death. So I, the Sound of Perseverance by Death has been my album, uh, and the version of it that I have actually comes with the DVD. So it's fun to watch the DVD, and uh, I actually watched the uh, I actually watched the DVD of a live show that comes with that CD with my five year old the other night, and uh, she's like, "Oh, he seems very angry," and I was like, "Oh, you know, it's." But I mean, look at look at his hands. Look at what his hands are doing. You know, like <laughs> it's it's incredible. So yeah, that's my album of the week. I, I love that thing. Jason, thanks for hanging out with us, man. Words do not express. That's all I can say. Well, thank you so much for having me on. Uh, like I mentioned, I'm a huge fan of your podcast, and uh, it's been my honor to be on here. I'm so thrilled. Uh, you guys are awesome. I love talking about music, digging into the. Dig into, into the nitty-gritty of Alice in Chains. That was fun. There's one record player left in the world. It has enough power to play one record one time. You have a choice. Painkiller or firepower? Which one do you choose? Oh, dear Lord. <laughs> wow. You know what? You know what? I'm going to say firepower. Because... Be, here, I know, I know, and I and I, I know I'm opening myself up to hate. However, <laughs> Painkiller is a great album, but it's pretty doofy in the lyrics. Like yeah. those lyrics sometimes are stupid, yeah. right? You know, you're right. <laughs> and, and and so, I think I think Firepower is because of the lyrical contents a little bit stronger. And I and we're talking like very small degrees, because <laughs> a lot of Judas Priest lyrics are pretty dumb. But I'm gonna go with that. That's that's my answer. I got what I need. Incredible. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. I, I agree definitely on the lyrics thing. I, I would have figured you would have picked Painkiller just for the classic status alone. I know, and I was tempted. That's that's the safe choice. So let's. Put, I, I'm going. A little, I'm going a little edgy because honestly, both of those albums, they are amazing. Like it, it's Painkillers. I mean, sorry, Firepower is just a return to that sound and that energy and. God, they just destroyed it. It's awesome. All right, guys. Have a good one. You too. Bye. Bye. So if you've been listening to this podcast as long as Jason's been listening to this podcast, then you might know that we are trying to cover as many bands as we possibly can, but we haven't covered everybody yet. So if there's a band that you want us to cover, reach out to us. There's so many different places you can reach out to us. You can reach out to us on Facebook, under facebook.com slash discography discussion. We have an official Facebook group. You can ask to join the group, and I will approve you. We also have a Discord server. There's a link in our show notes. If you click on that link, you'll get invited to our Discord, where you can chat with us in real time and give us band suggestions. You can also reach out to us on Twitter at Discuss Metal, or you can reach out to me personally at Discuss Metal Dan, or to Joe personally at Discuss Metal Joe. You can also send us an old-fashioned email at show at gmail.com. There are so many ways you can get a hold of us. If you haven't gotten a hold of us yet, it's your fault. And on that note, this has been episode 123 of Discography Discussion. Thank you for listening. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Discuss Metal. Subscribe to our podcast everywhere you listen to podcasts, including Google Play, iTunes, and Stitcher. Visit DiscussMetal.com for all things discography discussion. And please, send questions and comments to show at gmail.com. If you are not a patron, you can become one at Patreon.com forward slash DiscussMetal. We have some sweet perks. Give us your money! Metal Jesus Rocks can be found on YouTube and Twitter. Links will be in the description below. Hey, Joe, watch out for the Yeti! <laughs> <laughs>